Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders, a podcast where people connected to autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, I'm your host, Rachel Harmon, a professional with over a decade of experience in the field of autism services, outreach, and advocacy. Are you struggling to find ways to motivate your child or client? Do you want to build and maintain positive relationships while making learning fun? If so, you'll want to listen to this episode with Robert and Nadine Schramm, where they discuss how to work with autistic individuals while keeping their dignity at the forefront. This episode was originally released in November 2020. We're re-releasing it today to offer ideas for parents and professionals who are looking for support. Robert Schramm is a board-certified behavior analyst, a former special education instructor, and a published author. Nadine Schramm is an applied behavior analysis and verbal behavior consultant and leads their KNOSP ABA office in Germany. Robert and Nadine offer consultation, education, and workshop services to families. In this conversation, among other things, we discuss autism services currently available for families in Germany, how the attitudes towards autism in Germany have changed over the years, key takeaways from Robert's books titled Motivation and Reinforcement, Turning the Tables on Autism, and the Seven Steps to Earning Instructional Control, and why the principles behind the seven steps are useful for anyone interested in creating a strong learning environment. In this episode, discover what's possible when motivation leads to positive relationships. And now, I present you Robert and Nadine Schramm. Hello, Robert and Nadine. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Hi, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. We're looking forward to the opportunity. Could you please briefly introduce yourselves and provide a little background of how you became involved in the field? Sure, I'll start. My name is Robert Schramm. I'm a board certified behavior analyst. I started out as an education specialist. I was a teacher, special education teacher. I worked as an inclusion specialist and uh, found my way towards uh, board certification as a behavior analyst due to the struggles that I was having finding good supports within the classroom for kids with autism more than anything else. And 2003, Nadine and I met. Actually, in 2000, we met. But in 2003, we got married. I had just recently received my board certification. And Nadine, being of German descent, we chose to move to Germany together and started a service called Knospe ABA based on Nadine's maiden name. And that's been uh, up and running now for something like 16 years. Almost 17 years in January. Yeah, just like (laughs) the Global Autism Project. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, right. Same timing. We started around the same time. Yeah. When we first arrived in Germany, we were kind of the only show in town. At that point, there was autism intervention therapy centers around the country, but they generally weren't using anything as far as behavioral understanding within their programming. A lot of OT... SLP type services. And really the only understanding of ABA at all at that time was one university was doing something that they had created themselves called behavior therapy based off of Lovas's early writings. So when we arrived with a new modern form of ABA that included the priorities of verbal behavior, we walked into a situation where the country really was at a dearth of, dearth from, of knowledge in what you really could do in a lot of situations for children with the diagnosis of autism as well as others. And so we started working with a few families, right, Nadine? I think our first workshop had three families. 
Yeah, I was living in the States for several years in California, where I actually came into the field through Robert. He introduced me to one of the kids, actually through another teacher. I got introduced to a boy with autism, and he was in a LOVAS program back then, supervised by uh, LOVAS supervisors. And I started working, you know, one-on-one with a boy in their home under Life Institute supervision for several years. And that's how I got introduced to the ABA approach. And I was always curious how autism intervention looks in Germany. So I was always keeping in touch. You know, I tried through the internet, keeping in touch, finding out more about German autism intervention and all of it. And I got to know two or three families who were trying to do so-called ABA in Germany, which was what Robert was doing, pretty much saying old style ABA, what they were trying to do with their kids. It was drill and kill practice. Yeah. Locking the kids like behind the table, you know, they they sent me videos Mm -hmm. and it was just horrifying. And when we decided to moved to Germany where originally our plan was to just stay for one or two years so I could get to know my family, my culture and everything. There was such a big need and we actually went to the family's home just to help them out with their kids, just to show them what could be done and how it could be done in a very playful and motivating way for the children. And then, you know, all of a sudden we had so many families contact us and after like two or three months being in Germany, we like were 20 to 25 days on the road going from one family to the other. And at the beginning, we just had them pay the traveling fee and we did our services, you know, just for free because we were just trying to help them out. But then reality kicked in and we're like, okay, we have to come up with a plan here how we can systematically help families, you know, with their kids with autism and help the parents how they can help their kids. And so we started to do that. We came up with a program that was very different to what was happening in the U.S. at the time in general. It was because there wasn't an infrastructure for ABA services or behavioral services of any kind. We really had to focus in on parent training as our main focus. And I'm so glad and lucky that that was the the situation because in doing so, we didn't fall into the traps of having to feed families day in and day out with outside service providers, with behavioral interventionists. We instead took the, we took the tone of how do we teach parents how to interact in ways that will be beneficial to them and to their kids' development so that regardless of whether we stayed in Germany or for how long we were there or whether they had to move or they had issues, there was always a caregiver in that child's life who understood the behavioral principles, who knew how to implement them in meaningful ways. Whether or not it was an intensive early intervention program or not was less concerning to me than were they making good decisions from day in and day out. And ultimately, we started to find really quickly that when a family understands what they're trying to achieve and how to do it themselves, that the kids end up getting more than 40 hours a week of of good programming because the parents just make good choices all day long and the kids start to make good choices based off of that new environment that the parents are setting up. And once the parent was able to understand how they can change their behaviors to make the interactions with a child more successful, you know, and, and they saw finally some progress with the kids they were so motivated you know like okay what can I do next tell me what to do here and here and it was so awesome to see yeah and it with a real shame about it is that we were seeing like in six months with a family there we were seeing more progress than that child had seen in the last six years of their lives 
So these families that we talked to were blown away. They started telling everyone, you know, you got to do this ABA and AB. And it just became this big thing where everyone was talking about this ABA. And then, of course, there were people who were outside of the field and people who were already in autism intervention in Germany who started getting really nervous about you know, this cult of ABA that was coming in. And so there started to be lots of discussion from, from other people about, you know, is ABA good? Is it bad? What are these things? And then they started to assume that ABA was all traditional 1970s Lovas ABA. And so we had a lot to do, not only in showing families how to help their kids, but also in teaching the, the community in Germany. Well, to raise awareness, but also to clear up so many misunderstandings, which is actually still going on now in 2020, which is really sad. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask what the current understanding of autism is there. Is there any kind of stigma around mental health or developmental disabilities in general? Are you seeing people with autism in schools and in the communities? What is the attitude towards autism? It is definitely much better than it used to be, you know, when we first started. But Germany is still in Europe, a country with the highest percentage of special ed schools. So, you know, like the, in, in the US where all the kids get to go to the same school in Germany, many of them were diagnosed and have learning deficits who don't fit into the regular picture. They go to a special school you know, smaller groups, more teachers, you know, because we get to work in the whole country, we are seeing tons of kids in very different schools. And it's very different from what you're used to in, in LA or in the US in general. It's a lot of more babysitting, you know, where the kids are just, I mean, they're trying to get through the day, but there's not that much teaching going on because it's a very often overwhelming situation for the teachers in the classroom. Where we actually, we had the first kids back when we started, you know, a couple of years after we started in like 2006, where we found schools, a principal who is very open, who was open to take in a kid with special needs. And then he had a great, you know, teacher. And then we actually had the first child in Germany who got to go to a typical school, to a regular classroom with a one-on-one aid. So that's how it started. And we could show them, you know, how you can actually include a child who is a little different than the others Mm -hmm. but it's not common that every child like it's in the u.s gets to go to a regular school it's pretty much special ed classrooms special ed schools so they're like tucked away i think it's much better now than it was i think we see a lot more of it but i think our company and the other behavior analysts that work with us have had a lot to do with that. I came to Germany with the mindset of an inclusion specialist, which is one of the jobs I had in Manhattan Beach before becoming a behavior analyst. And, you know, to me, it always didn't make sense why we were putting kids in a special place just because of their diagnosis. And so it was all about trying to prove that they could succeed. Now, I understood that they were struggling because they really weren't taking into account behavioral contingencies with children and they were often reinforcing the negative behavior that they were seeing. And kids were learning that the more outrageous their behavior became, the more likely they were to get freedom from the expectations. And so you just saw things snowballing out of control. But once we were able to go in and for an individual child, change that perspective and get people to understand that the way that you interact and what you reinforce increases the types of behaviors you see and that you can make really meaningful changes fairly quickly in time, we started to be able to change that. When we first got to Germany, I was the first board certified behavior analyst that 
Germany saw. Uh, I think now we're up around 22 or so, many of which have come through our institute, have worked with Canos BBA and are out on their own now. But there's even a Society of Behavior Analysis, and that is a chapter of ABA International. ABA Deutschland. Mm-hmm. That's one of the accomplishments that we've made, been able to do over the last 15, 17 years. Great. How are families paying for services? Well, at the beginning when we started, they were all paying out of pocket. But now we made sure from the beginning that we videotaped the progress a lot. And to be able to show, you know, the progress over so and so many months or years. And then we had the first families applying for cost reimbursement. And now 17 years later, almost more than 80% of our clients are getting cost reimbursement through their local social office. So it's not covered by health insurance. It's the social office who is paying for the consulting in the family's home. So we are usually, because we're teaching the family and the team how they can teach the kids, and we are developing learning and behavior plans, so based on that. So they're they're paying for our services. But it's not a style where a kid is getting like 40 hours one-on-one therapy in a clinic clinic setting. So it's a very different concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they're paying for our consulting services, and then in some cases, they're paying for some one-to-one on top of that to support the families in being able to implement those services. But every family is making their own case for their child, so and to see what this kid needs you know, for the next year, and then it's getting approved for one year, and then you file for another year. There are positives and negatives to the system because the fact that there's a social system and the ability to get funding is great. The fact that it's individualized allows families to demonstrate what they need and be able to fight for what their child individually needs so families can get different amounts of money depending upon the services that that child requires. But the problem with it is that every single family has to fight. They have to make their case. They have to fight for mm-hmm. it. And we found that depending on where in Germany you live, what what region of Germany you live in, the challenges of getting cost coverage is going to be different. Yeah. There are certain parts of the country that uh, are very forward-thinking and supportive because they understand that supporting kids now means less money from the government later. Whereas there's other parts of the country whose focus is to just keep the door shut, keep the door shut on the money now. What they don't realize is that many more of those children end up living in homes and living with, you know, lifelong services. And it's probably important to add, Robert, that a year ago in spring 2019, we were able to sign a contract with our local social office, meaning, you know, they approved everything, all the service we are offering. And this contract now we are able to present to all of those other different cost reimbursement offices. And based on that, they are now doing cost coverage. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we, it's, it, that's really great. And it took many, many years to accomplish it. So that's a big, big step in the right direction for sure for those families because it is definitely easier now. Yeah. What kind of services are available for adults? They do have job coaching availability for some kids. A lot of kids who weren't able to stay with their families were put into home placements. But as far as transition and ongoing adult services, a lot of families find themselves on their own. Mm. Well, they have like workshops where they go to, you know, once they're out of school, where they, you know, work on different projects and stuff. Like vocational skills? Yeah. Yeah. My uncle has Down syndrome in the United States back in, and he's my age. So back in the 60s and seven, I guess the 70s when he was getting into that area, it was a 
basically a place where the kids would go. They would have people there to support them and they would do piecemeal work and stuff like that. And they would get a, a payment from the government for the work that they did each day. I think it's, it's more that kind of stuff that's that's available for more families. It's a shame. It's, I think there, there definitely needs to be more. And I think all of the progress that we've seen has come from individual families themselves fighting and creating things for themselves and other families around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we see this with our partners all over the world. And in the U.S. too, you know, it started with a parent movement to fight for their rights and kind of stand up to the government and demand what was needed. But you guys have done really incredible work in Germany to move things forward. We appreciate that. We've just kind of been following the kids and their needs, right? So Mm -hmm. we meet a child and we try to follow what he needs or she needs. And uh, we developed our, our process and programs around that. Yeah. Great. So just transitioning topics. I want to talk about some of the books that you've written. The first book is titled Motivation and Reinforcement, Turning the Tables on Autism. And this book was first published in 2007, and a later edition was released in 2011. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. This is kind of my, my big ABA verbal behavior teaching manual. This was my attempt at taking behavioral principles and translating them into everyday language for parents and teachers of children with a diagnosis to be able to use these techniques to their benefit. So what do you mean by turning the tables on autism? Yeah, the reason that that that's part of my title is because I have a a firm belief that when you have a teaching setting in which you are trying to pull the student to learn from you, where you want them to learn more than they want to learn from you, that you're always going to be at a disadvantage. You're always going to be in a less than optimal situation. That everything we do in our, with our behavioral principles is designed to set up a system where the child sees our teaching setting as the oasis, as the, the, the most fun they could be having all day, as the amusement park. And so when we're engaged and willing and able to teach and support a child, when we have the time to be there with them, we want to make sure that we're seen as the most fun they could possibly be having. And so everything we do within a behavioral approach is designed to set it up so that the child wants to engage with us even more than we need want to be engaging with them so that they see that there's some responsibility on their part to be a part of this fun and to be able to maintain and have access to all of this wonderful interaction. Therefore, they start seeing the learning aspects of what we're doing as their responsibility, as things they want to be doing because it makes their life better. It, it helps them to move forward. So the really the idea of turning the tables was meant to be this idea of instead of constantly trying to drag a child who's trying to avoid you into teaching, setting up the environment and turning the tables where they're actually begging you or wanting you or trying to engage you to teach them because your teaching is more fun than what they could be doing without it. That's really what it refers to. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily have to be autism in general. I know that the main audience that I was speaking to was children with a diagnosis of autism. But as we know, children with autism are so different from one to the next. And there's nothing about behavioral approaches that don't apply for any teaching with any child with any diagnosis or no diagnosis at all. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't necessarily say we're turning the tables on autism itself, but it's meant to be how we turn the tables on the teaching setting so that our clients want to engage with us and want to pull learning from us rather than us trying to constantly be pulling it from them. Yeah, got it. 
So why do you think this book is really helpful for parents and teachers? Well, I think everything in the book, it does come from experience with families. These are things that I've seen and these are things that we've done and this is the outcomes that that we've had. And then I bring it back to the principles as to why this works, why this is the way that it is. And I think that's one of the reasons the book has been as successful as it has, because it isn't a dissertation on behavior analysis. It is written so that a typical mom or dad in middle America or you know in the middle of Russia or in the middle of Germany can read this thing and say, oh, well, this makes sense. I totally get it. And what I wanted them to get was the aha moment that I got when I first had the behavioral principles explained to me, because it was this aha of oh, I see. It's not. We're not following a strict pattern of this is how we teach. We're just following these basic principles that guide interactions. And I think the understanding of those basic principles apply in everyday life. It ha doesn't have anything to do with autism. And that's a big aha moment for most of the parents or even professionals we were able to meet so far in Germany and who got to read the book. Yeah, it's not ABA the way that we do it with verbal behavior approach is not designed as an autism fix. It's not designed to remediate or to abolish autism. It's designed to teach and it's designed to identify the best and the most effective ways to teach an individual based on using the principles of behavior as your guide. Mm -hmm. And because I came into this not as a scientist promoting ABA, but as a teacher looking for the best ways to help my students, I've always had that mentality going in. And I think that served us really well as far as helping me to create a really holistic, family-friendly, uh, child-centered approach to applied behavior analysis. Yeah, that's so important because, you know, I think a lot of behavior analysts can lose people in the jargon and the fancy words, and we can be helping so many different other areas of life too, other domains outside of working with children, autism or not. Yeah. You know, like thinking about the different ways that behavior science can change behavior to benefit the world, like climate change, for example. Like, why are we not tapping into that as a science, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's so many governmental uses for behavior analysis that, you know, hopefully we can really focus on getting ourselves in there. I'm personally focusing more recently on trying to work towards families of typical children who are having challenging behavior and are struggling, um, not just children with a diagnosis. But um, I think we'll talk a little bit about that later, maybe. Yeah, actually, let's talk about your second book, which was published in 2014. And this one is titled The Seven Steps to an Earning Instructional Control. So before we get into that, could you first define what instructional control is and why it's important? Sure. Instructional control is a scientific term that discusses or, or relates to the likelihood that a set condition in the environment, a set environmental condition, is going to lead to a expected or desired outcome. So if you want to parse that out and look at it, is the question is, is, if when I'm working with a child, is the environment set up in such a way that when I give the child a specific instruction or a specific antecedent through my language, am I likely to get a, an expected response from that versus an unexpected response, something that I wasn't planning or hoping for. And the more likely a child is to respond to both my instructions, but also the environment around them in expected ways, the better the instructional control is. 
Now, the term instructional control is problematic. It's much better than the early terms for this sort of thing, like compliance training and that sort of thing. But I think the word control still puts people off because it isn't about us taking control over the child. It's about the environment actively controlling or I would say even better than controlling, motivating or even pushing a child toward making more positive choices. And so we're, we've been talking, we've been flirting a little bit with this idea of instructional motivation as a better term for it. Hmm. But really what you're talking about when you talk about instructional control is how likely is the fact that you're about to go and wash your, or you're about to go and eat lunch? How reliable is that on getting your child to say, oh, I need to wash my hands first? If your child sees that it's lunchtime and then they actively go and wash their hands because they're going to go eat, then you would say that that environmental condition has instructional control over the behavior of washing your hands. And the same thing is true as if I say to a child, hey, do you, I need you to put that in the garbage for me. What is the likelihood that they're going to look, listen, and try their best to, to comply with that instruction? Because ultimately, it's in their best interest. That's what instructional control really refers to. Got it. And why do you frame it as earning instructional control? You know, so many people try to change my book name to The Seven Steps to Instructional Control. I've been hearing that ever since I started because it's easier. But I've always fought to keep the word earning in there because without question to me, the most important thing is that we understand it's our job to develop this. It's our job to earn it and it's our job to maintain it. A child doesn't just walk around and give instructional control to anyone and they shouldn't, just like we don't. I mean, if I walked, in walked into your room right there and I said, hey, come wash my car without any <laughs> preparation, without any relationship, without any experience as to why there would be a benefit for you in that or even a reason why you would do that, then the expectation is we would have, I would have no instructional control over you. So why would you come and wash my car for me just because some bald-headed guy um, with a tie on said so? <laughs> Right. And so we don't want that. We don't expect a child to do whatever anyone tells them. We expect them to make good decisions related to the caregivers and people who have developed and earned that right to be able to give them instructions because those people have proven that they're in that child's best interest. And so the process of earning instructional control is really that figuring out how I can convince a child through my actions and behavior that I'm someone who's worth building a relationship with and wanting to maintain that relationship by doing their part. And so many families, when I meet them, basically the child is here and the family's running around doing 100% of everything that needs to be done to maintain any kind of relationship with that child. And what we do is we start to set it up so that we can earn that child's desire to want to fix and maintain relationships with their caregivers as well. And that's really the crux of what the seven steps does for us. It's always like, a, you know, the parent, it's like, okay, ask yourself, what's the reason for the child to do it right now in the moment? And if you cannot think of a good reason, then it's probably not working. It shouldn't be done. You know, you have to change your behavior. Why would they want to do this? If you can't answer why they would want to do it, they're likely not to do it. Mm -hmm. And therefore you're stuck having to either punish or extinguish or use some kind of, you know, the ball starts rolling negatively down the hill versus always coming up with an understanding of why they would want to achieve the thing you want them to achieve or to participate in the thing you want them to participate. And if you can set up your environment so that those reasons are readily available to them, 
Then when you give that instruction under this high probability, they're more likely to do it, which allows you to start the ball rolling positively down the hill because then you get to reinforce and then you get to play and then you get to give another instruction under high probability and then you get to reinforce. And then you just see the relationship build as well as the cooperation starts to build. Right. And then it just opens up so many more learning opportunities for the kid. Without question. Yeah, exactly. So if you don't mind, let's dive into the seven steps. And I know we don't have too much time to go into a lot of depth, but if you could just provide an overview of the different strategies. Nadine, do you mind if I do that? No, go for it. But Robert, remember, just an overview. It's not a workshop (laughs) or anything because he tends to go, ah. Nadine, maybe you can help me out here and then just kind of guide him to the next one. (laughs) Okay, I'll cut in. (laughs) Yeah, the seven steps has been my life's work. It's been a passion of mine. It's something that developed out of my understanding of what works and what doesn't work. Getting into applied behavior analysis, one of the biggest problems I had with the general recommendations at the time, what is generally accepted as part of behavior analysis was this concept of escape extinction. Escape extinction is physically not allowing a child to escape a task that they're choosing to avoid or escape. And I always had a problem with it because as I tried to build my relationships with the kids I was working with, I was always taught that as soon as they start to escape or avoid, you physically block that. You don't allow that to occur. And I noticed immediately that with every child I was working with, I always damaged the relationship, often beyond repair, at least beyond immediate repair, by turning my setting and my teaching setting into captive learning. Mm-hmm. And I knew really early on in my career that if I was going to be able to help a child to be optimize their potential, to really get the most out of what they could be learning, they had to be on that journey with me and they couldn't be dragged along that journey. They had to want to be a part of that interaction with me. And so I really started trying to figure out how can I avoid using escape extinction? And as I was working, the longer I was working, the more I realized that there were basically seven main important behavioral principles. That if I kept myself focused on these seven principles, and I always met these goals, these seven principles within my interactions, that suddenly the child that I was working with, the child that I was engaged with, would see me as a more positive environmental stimulus, someone they'd want to be with, and would want to engage more with me to be able to do that. And whenever I struggled in maintaining instructional control, or if I saw a family who didn't have good instructional control, I could always go back to one of these seven things and point it out and say, this is what you need to fix. This is what's missing. If you do this or this, you're going to see the difference. And once we fixed the things that weren't part of the seven steps, suddenly the instructional control started to improve and the relationship started to improve. And so that's why the seven steps kind of developed pretty quickly And they just strengthened and grew over years because of just more and more families and just more confidence that if I just focus on these seven things in everything that I do, I will always be putting myself in a situation where the child's going to want to work with me or see that working with me is generally more beneficial to them than trying to avoid without ever having to force them to. Yeah. And just before you you move on to that, I do want to comment that there is this reputation about applied behavior analysis amongst actually autistics, like the actually autistic movement or just autistic adults who have been traumatized by ABA practice. And I've heard stories that, you know, they've been forced into doing things that it's behavior modification. And I really believe that some of those escape extinction procedures that you're talking about have played a part in the harm that these now adults are traumatized by. 
So I think it's really important to just acknowledge that. Yeah. You know, and and not shy away from it as as a field. Yeah, I agree. I think that having gone through the back and forth with the German society, kind of the anti-ABA society uh, and the speakers and people that that engage there, the hardest thing for me was trying to differentiate what we actually do with what we actually do in a verbal behavior approach, especially one that uses the seven steps, with what they assumed or thought that we did based upon traditional early Lovas punishment procedures or programs that had to use an enormous amount of escape extinction in order to get a child to maintain or to engage. And so my, my biggest struggle with that community was not that I didn't understand or respect their point of view. It was that I felt like we always struggled because no matter what we said to show that we weren't really engaging in those types of things that they were complaining about, the fact that we say behavioral at all or have ABA anywhere near our name automatically said we were we were negative, we were against ABA, no matter what evidence we provided to the opposite. And so that was always a struggle for us because we really were focused on what was best for the child and, and supporting them in a way that was going to be meaningful to them. But it didn't seem to matter how we would explain that or what we would say. It was always just assumed that there was nothing we could do behavioral that wasn't going to be anti autism that wasn't going to be against the kids and that was always that was always disheartening to me mm. having said that i have dedicated my work to trying to set up an environment where kids can learn because they want to learn from us and our job is to show them the value of cooperation the value of social interaction the value of of engaging in positive interactions with their families we try to set up an environment where the teaching setting is an oasis a place of fun and joy and a child who chooses to avoid that can. If you don't want to be a part of my fun and joy, you can. But I, th I think, Robert, it's important to add, too, it's not only a teaching situation. When we go into the family's home, we are looking into daily interactions, you know, every waking moment of the child. How can you change the environment in a way that makes it more beneficial for the child, of course, not only to learn, but to be part of the family You know, to make to make family life for everyone pleasant, you know, instead of yelling at the kid, getting upset or whatever, um, because the individual needs are not they, often not they, they don't understand it. Mm -hmm. The alternative is often never looked at. The alternative in a lot of families is when a child with a diagnosis of autism who starts to develop now, not, I mean, there's children with who, who have an autism diagnosis who never develop any kind of problematic behavior for their families. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no reason to ever have a behavior analyst anywhere near that family's home, right? The only reason we would come in is if there's a family that's truly struggling. And often why they're struggling is that the parents in their attempts to parent to the best of their ability are often exacerbating situations, making things end up worse because they don't know what the child's motivated for. They don't know how to factor in the child's desires and interests into their everyday interactions in a way that allows them to have give and take. And what happens is, is the family starts to lose and they start to lose track of what they're doing and the child can take complete control over the family. It's not uncommon for us to come into a home where there's a six-year-old boy who basically chooses what everyone eats for dinner, who chooses who's allowed to sit where and who's allowed to go in because that's what makes them feel comfortable. 
And also, you're just saying six-year-old boy. Unfortunately, in Germany, especially in the beginning years when we started, kids were still diagnosed at a very late age. And, you know, I mean, we sometimes get called in, you know, kids are already 12, 13, 14 years old and didn't really have any type of intervention program before, which is pretty sad. Yeah. And so left to just survive in a family that is doing their best, but doesn't necessarily understand them or understand the principles of behavior and how that could be helping them often exacerbates the problems. And these children who may have differences in ways of thinking and may have differences in in ways of interacting with the environment or sensorily understanding the environment. Well, what happens is, is people who don't understand those issues doing their best to parent and raise and just get through the day without their whole family falling apart, often do things to get to get through the moment that make that child's behavior more severe or more challenging as they go. And when we when you see kids, no kid with autism or very few kids with autism at age two and three are demonstrating, you know, really challenging, strong behaviors. Yet those same kids develop those things by age four and five, age six and seven. By the time they're 13 and 14, they're willing in some cases, to bite and scratch and kick. And I've seen kids who throw poo, um, who will pee at you in order to maintain their control over that environment. And they've taken complete control over the family environment. And now the family is at a loss. The parents are considering giving the child up to a home where they're going to put them in Germany, where they're going to put them in a straitjacket if they have to, to hold them down or just medicate them out of, out of existence. And so When you see those kids and those challenges and you see that these families are hitting 12 and 13 years old and 16 years old and not getting any better, but consistently having bigger and bigger problems and these kids falling further and further away from the ability to have any kind of a meaningful life, it gives me more power and and belief in what we're doing for those kids is right, right? It is right to find ways to help teach kids who may be challenging to teach. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean it's right to force kids and hold them in against their will. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily right to use punishment procedures as a first go around. And these are things that I think have been proven to be pushed out of modern ABA over the years more and more and more, which I think is important. And we need to keep doing that. Yes, exactly. Having said that, we need to have a system that works that doesn't do that. And that's why I developed the seven steps. Okay, so let's go into the steps. Step one. Step one. Show the child that you are ultimately the caregiver and in control of the items and the activities in the environment that they would want to have access to, play with, um, hold on to. So as a parent, you have the right to bring anything you want into the environment. You can decide if they can bring a gun into the house or not. You can decide if, a, if they can have access to video games or Fortnite or whatever. So as that caregiver, you decide what comes into the environment. You also have to show the child that you ultimately get to control what they can get those things for and what they can't, how they can gain them, how they can lose them, how long they can have them. And step one just forces a parent to consider, how would I control this reinforcer if it's needed to be? How do I give it? How do I can control it? And how do I show the child that I can do those two things as needed? That's step one. Mm-hmm. What would you say to parents who you know, now their kids have full access to everything. Is it then the parents coming in, starting to lock things up? Like, is it a gradual step towards that? I think like anything we do, it all depends. You know, the the best path forward is the one that 
that makes the most sense for that family in that situation. In some cases, it's best to just wipe, wipe the slate clean and say, okay, we need to start taking these items out of this room and being able to bring them into the room as they're, as they're, they're developing that. Really what happens is what it generally looks like is there's toys all over the home. There's toys all over the floor. And when the family asks the child, hey, come on over here and have something to eat, the child says no, and then they go off and play. And then the family starts to get upset and they start to yell and they start to grab the child and pull them to the table. And then the child pulls away. And so now you've got this pull game. But the reason the child's pulling away is because he's pulling back towards something he thinks is going to be better. Mm-hmm. And so by taking control over those items and just taking, cleaning them up, cleaning up the house, putting them into bins or putting them into rooms where if you needed to, you could close the door or put it up on a shelf where the child can't reach it. Then when you say, hey, I need you to sit down and the child says, I don't really want to, you can say, okay, you don't have to, it's your choice, but you can't go off and play. You can't go off and, and have whatever you want. Like if I went to work and I said, you know what, I'm just not going to work today. They're not going to keep paying me for that job. But I know our kids aren't at work, but they are learning. Their job is to learn how to live in society in a way that's successful for them. So I think what we're trying to do with step one is show the child that we ultimately do get to control as their caregivers, their access to the reinforcement, and that the family needs to focus on making sure that they can do that when they need to. They can give it when they need to, and they can withhold it when they need to, so that We can make sure we use those things as reinforcement for the behavior we want to see more of, but we can also use it as part of extinction when we have a behavior that that we don't want to see happening more, that isn't beneficial to that child Mm long-term. Got it. So that moves us on to step two. Mm -hmm. Um, Step two is to show the child that you are fun. Make every interaction you have with the child as fun as an enjoyable of an experience for them so that ultimately they're going to want to engage with you. And then when you do give your instructions in later steps, they have a reason to want to engage because they want to maintain that, that relationship and that fun activity. I push my families to be 75% pairing, positive interaction, reinforcing, just being there, not asking. And that allows them only up to 25% of the time where they could be giving that child an instruction or having an expectation. And positive, what the child finds reinforcing, not what I might find reinforcing. So mm. that's, that's mm-hmm. uh, often, you know, a change too for the parents to try to figure out, okay, what is he's doing right now? He's rolling on the ground. Okay, maybe I could bring more fun in if I go and I like help him to roll maybe a little bit harder, faster or give pressure. So it, it, it's a mindset, you know, it's a learning process definitely for the for the parents at the beginning. Yeah, the best way to teach it is, How, as the caregiver, teacher, therapist, whatever you want to call yourself, whatever role you're in, how do you make everything the child would like to do more fun because you're a part of it? I don't believe in traditional ABA, LOVA style reinforcement of go play as a reinforcer. Mm-hmm. I'm absolutely 100% against go play as a reinforcer. I think come play with me should be your reinforcer. Mm-hmm. I'll play with you your way and make it more fun because I'm a part of it. That needs to be the reinforcer because we're not just trying to get a child to do what we've asked them to do so that they can play on their own, but we're trying to get them to see us as the direction by which all the wonderful things of life can come. We're the way you get the best things in life is through your parents, through your caregivers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've heard, you know, people say you want to be the grandma or Sasha Long says you want to be the chocolate chip cookie. Yeah. You want to be the fun dispenser. (laughs) Yeah. There you go. Exactly. Hey, Rachel here. I'd like to thank one of our listeners, Incoming BCBA, for reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. 
They said, quote, This show is a great blend of technical know-how, advocacy, and compassion, both from and for the autistic community. Whether you or someone you love is affected by this or not, you should listen and learn. End quote. Thank you for the kind words in coming BCBA. Five-star reviews like yours help us to continue spreading autism awareness and acceptance around the world. If you're also finding value in Autism Knows No Borders, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the conversation. So that would bring us to step three. Now that we've shown the child that we are ultimately able to give or not give their favorite things or their favorite activities based upon their behavior choices, and we've shown that being with us is more fun than being alone, that, that you know, the swings is great, but the swings with Robert is hysterical. He's laughing and, and, and tickling and jumping out of the way and pretending he got hit in the face or making funny faces and making me laugh. I don't want the swings. I want Robert in the swings. So how do I get that? And once the child is trying to pull you into their fun, now you're going to find that you're in a, in a better teaching position because rather than trying to pull the child to learn from you, they're pulling you, trying to get more from you. And as they're trying to get more from you, you're now in a position of high probability where you can give an instruction. And there's a reason why the child would want to follow that instruction. So if a child is taking me and saying, come, push me on the swings, push me on the swings. And I say, sure, touch your nose or sure, give me a high five. They're going to be much more likely to go, oh, yeah, or, or yeah, because I want you to do something. Under the desire for engagement, they're going to be more likely to cooperate with whatever simple instructions I give them. So step three talks about how and when you actually give instructions. It says, show the child that you can be trusted. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Always follow through on instructions you give, but pick your instructions wisely and choose to give them at the right times with the right language. Mm-hmm. The three basic things that I talk about with this is give your instructions under high probability when you already know what the child wants from you, when there's already a motivator and a reason why they would do it. Because like we said earlier, if you don't know why they would do it, they probably won't. Use the right type of language. If you're going to ask a question, accept the answer. Don't say, hey, do you want to come over here and work? And then when the child says no, say, oh, yeah, yeah, we, you need to work or you need to go to the bathroom. If you're going to say, do you want something? Let the child say yes or no. If you're going to ask them if they want to do something, let them say yes or no. If it is going to be an instruction though, you need to make it clear that there's an expectation. And so we use expectation language. I want, I need, it's time to, Mm -hmm. or, you know, I want you to put this in the garbage. I need you to stop that right now and come put this where we asked you to, or it's time to um, put that down and come finish your work, whatever it might be. And when there's expectation language, then we can follow through because now we've given that child, we've set that event that now there's going to be a consequence, positive or negative, depending on what you do. Mm -hmm. It's also just modeling integrity. Absolutely. I say what I mean, and I mean what I say. And I'm not going to tell you that if you don't, like, I don't want parents to tell a kid, if you lay on the floor here, I'm just going to get in the car and I'm going to leave you here. Right. The first time they might get up out of fear and they might come with you. And you might think, oh, that worked. But one of these days, they're going to be motivated enough to not want to get up. And when you don't leave them and they say, oh, well, I don't have to believe what they're saying. Why should I trust what he's saying? Because he's just going to show me that it's not true. You're right. Integrity is what we're working for. Have integrity in the way that you work with your child and the way that you play with your child. If you're doing step three correctly, it's coming out of step two. You're playing, you're having fun, you're making life better. The child now wants something from you and you go, oh, here's my opportunity. Yeah, do me a favor. Give me a high five. 
or tap this table or whatever learning goal you want to work on that's easy for them to be able to engage in because we're trying to set up a system like we're trying to earn their willingness to cooperate with more challenging things down the road, we start with simple and easy things. So that brings us to step number four, which says, show the child that cooperation, that following instructions, that making good behavior choices is easy, fun, and generally leads to good things. By step number four, we're really focused on the principle of positive reinforcement. How do we set a child up to be successful and then show them that success leads to good things. Oh, I just asked you to touch your nose. You touch your nose. Look at all these wonderful things. I keep playing. I keep tickling. We keep pushing on the swings. Just give me a high five. Look at all these wonderful things. And what we're trying to do with step four is set up this new reality, this turn of the table to some degree that says that instructions from mom or instructions from dad are no longer things to be avoided because they take me out of the fun I'm having. Like usually a child is watching TV and then mom comes in and says, hey, I need you to turn that off and come over here and eat. And so I was like, no, I don't want to eat. Why would I do that? I'm enjoying, I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. So instructions become paired with aversives. They become paired with negative situations, movement from high uh, high value to low value. And we want the exact opposite to be true. We want our instructions to always lead her to higher value. So we want the child to see our instructions as opportunities for more fun, opportunities for better things. Now, if we're playing and engaged and we give the child an instruction and they make a positive choice, we want to add more of that fun thing or give more positive reinforcement or somehow make their environment better because they cooperated. That's what step four talks about. Mm -hmm. Show your child that following instructions is easy and fun and always leads to positive outcomes. Mm -hmm. And you have to start small first, right? Yeah. Step five really starts to focus on that. It's funny how whenever I explain the seven steps, the next question always leads to the next step. (laughs) I've done some research on this. I really, I've done some, some effort and, you know, we're talking thousands of kids now that we've worked with using these principles in this way. And it's quite remarkable how every child is different. Every way that you implement the seven steps is going to look different because each child is different. But if you can hold true to these seven principles, you're going to find yourself the best path towards better cooperation. And again, the beautiful thing is it's not only something for a child with autism or like a learning disability. So often when we work in the family's home, we explain it to the family. We show it with a child that's like, oh, that's awesome. I can do it with my 10-year-old too. Or, you know, my three-year-old will profit so much from it too. It's such a great tool. So I think that's so wonderful about the seven steps. And that's, mm-hmm. yeah. In fact, a lot of the kids I work with now I'm not quite sure they would normally have gotten a diagnosis in the past or anywhere else. And that the major function of their autism diagnosis is a lack of instructional control. In fact, there's a lot of kids that have been diagnosed over the years who, once you earn instructional control and once they've, or instructional motivation, whatever we want to call it, once they've decided, oh, learning from Robert and mom and dad is the most fun I can have. That's, the, that's what I want to be doing. Some of these kids have the ability to learn really quickly. And suddenly, once they're learning and they're making these better choices and they see the benefits of those better choices and it gets connected to the social world in a way that they're not used to, and the benefits of that are become apparent, we see kids make incredible progress in some cases, like like mind-blowing progress. Right. Because they're generalizing too. Like if they're going from one classroom to another classroom, that setting maybe sets up this expectation that they're going to be reinforced also. It's much easier to generalize from the beginning than it is to try to teach something in a fake setting and then generalize it later. That we've learned. Mm -hmm. 
And for me, there's the question just comes, well, did this kid ever really truly have autism? I don't know. It does, it's not important. It's not for me to say. I don't diagnose anyone. In fact, you don't have to have autism for me to want to work with you. I just need to know that you're struggling at some area in your life and that the people that you or the people in charge of your your betterment, your, your life, um, feel like there's things that they don't know how to do to help you. And I want to come in and see if I can be a detective and figure out behaviorally what we can do based on the principles to help you. And that's really my approach. Mm -hmm. But your question was, do you start small and how do you build up? Well, that goes into step number five. Step five is says, in the beginning, give consistent reinforcement for each and every positive behavior. And then over time, slowly increase the difficulty level and slowly increase the variable ratio of the reinforcement as you go. And the way I explain this to families is really quickly is just like, there's this horrible old saying, like, if you throw a frog into a boiling pot, he'll jump out. If you want to boil a frog, you have to throw them into a lukewarm pot and then slowly turn the heat up over time. That visual. Oh, no. <laughs> I've never heard that saying. I don't think you should use that example anymore. Um, why are we boiling frogs? I have no idea. Uh, I, think, I think they used to use them for frog legs or something in the South. But apparently it's a true statement. That And if it makes sense. If you throw a frog into a boiling pot of water, he's going to jump out. Why wouldn't he? Yeah. But the thing about a, a frog is if you throw him into a lukewarm pot, he'll stay there comfortably and happily. And the idea is if you turn the temperature up slowly over time, the child doesn't notice the differences, but they just continue to enjoy what they're doing and continues to be a part of it and don't have any reason to leave. We want that same kind of an idea in our teaching setting. So we start with the simplest of instructions. Give me a high five. Oh, wait a second. Good job waiting. Here you go. Touch your nose. Clap your hands. Anything that we think the child could do without thinking, without any problem, not a learning goal, but just a willingness to cooperate. We start with really simple instructions, things that the child would be likely to want to do. Mm -hmm. The important thing is the things that we know the child can do. I think that's important to mention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Start with things that they can do. And then if they're choosing not to, it's about, it's about some form of control or instructional control, a lack of instructional control. And then we start to teach the child through experience that cooperation with simple things always leads to better things. It always leads you to better outcomes. Life is better, more fun. Mom is more fun. Mom gives me more things. We engage in more activities when we just touch our nose, when we just do this. And then over time, step five says you start to increase the variable ratio of reinforcement. So once the child is engaged and wanting to work with you and seeing, oh, this is easy. I don't mind doing this. Then you slowly start to sneak in a second instruction, easy instruction. Or maybe you try to get two or three things in before you give that reinforcement and you thin out the ratio of the reinforcement. And then ultimately you start to increase the difficulty level of what you're asking. And you build a teaching setting towards being able to, to use your, your actual learning goals, whatever they may be for that child. Mm-hmm. That's what step five does. And so, yeah, you start with the simplest possible things you, and you build from success. Once I have a, a successful back and forth relationship where the child likes interacting with me and I'm getting them to cooperate, but also seeing the benefit of that cooperation and I'm making their life better because of it, then I can slowly over time increase the difficulty level of what I'm asking or the amount of what I'm asking. But I have to regiment that over time. Right. And I guess as a parent or a teacher, they'd have to just kind of Yes, experiment a little bit and see, okay, maybe I'm expecting too much, pull back a little bit, and then just kind of do that little dance. Is that right? Yeah, there's a little bit of an art to it. Mm -hmm. And I think families get better and better at it as we teach them and as we demonstrate and practice it. 
And I think that's why it's important to, at least at the beginning, I mean, to have some support and you can ask your question and, you know, we can help how to make it the best experience possible. There's some people out there who can read the seven steps. Like the, we offer a free guide on the website. That's a 16 page guide that just explains the seven steps just for free. Here you go. This is all you need to do. If you can figure out how to do this with your child, you're going to have better success. You're going to have a better relationship and get better cooperation. Now, if you have trouble with that, if the, if reading this, the page, the, the seven steps and understanding the concepts is hard for you to implement, then there's additional supports for you. You know, we have some pre-recorded courses you can take and we have one-to-one coaching you can get. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's what we're trying to make available to people all over the world. Having said that, there is a dance to step five. And when we give a, ch- a family goals to go along with it, we give them instructional control goals, things we know the child can already do. So they're only asking the child to do things that are easy for them. And then slowly we're giving them new goals, the simplest, easiest things the child should be able to learn to do. And then we slowly help stair step it upwards as we go until the child's involved in a back and forth learning situation where they're spending 20, 30 minutes around one reinforcer, happily answering every question, even hard ones, in order to keep maintaining that fun activity. And that if they choose not to, then the family could stop the activity and say, well, if you don't want to participate, that's fine. You don't have to. Unfortunately, the work has to stop too. And that's where we get into step seven. Mm -hmm. So step six is a little bit of a catch-all. It's important information, but I like it. I like putting it here. What step six is show that you understand your child's priorities as well as your own. And really, we want to make sure two things. One that we have a good understanding of what really motivates the child. What do they want at any moment in time? Like if we're sitting here on the bed at night, what do they want? Do they want tickles and hugs? Do they want to be left alone? When they're you know, in the bathroom, do they want to be splashing with the water? Or do they want to be taking a shower? Do they want to be taking a bath? Do they want to have toys? Do they not? The better we understand what they would enjoy at any point in time, the better we can use it to support their learning. The better we can use it as a tool to help us. Mm-hmm. So in step six is where we really make a pretty detailed list of prioritization of child's reinforcers. We would do some kind of a reinforcer inventory. Everything from food to drinks to items to activities, things that they love to do with us or with friends. And and we try to make sure that we know what's more valuable than others because we want to make sure that the better the cooperation, the better the effort that the child is putting in, the more rewarding the response is the more and better we're offering reinforcement to them so that they see that if I just kind of slough my way through it, yeah, I'm going to keep getting positive things from dad. But if I really focus and stop what I'm doing and really concentrate, he's going to give me more and better because that's within step six. He's going to go out of his way to do that. Mm -hmm. And knowing that it can change too, right? Like what might work one day for a kid and be really fun might not work the next day. Well, having a full list makes you more flexible to play with those things as they come. Hey, I really know this is something you love. Oh, you don't love it. Well, where do I go? What do I do? Well, luckily, we've got three other things on our list around that area that might be more. We can offer those things. Oh, so you don't want to play this? Do you want to do ping pong? Do you want to, you know, what, what, what do you, oh, you want to watch TV? Okay, let's watch TV. I don't try to force my reinforcers on a child ever. I always want the teaching to be based upon what the child wants to be doing. What I will do is I'll end an activity at a certain point. And say, okay, well, now we're done with this because we've done it for a while and we've had lots of fun with it. And I'm afraid that your desire for it is going to start weaning. And I don't want to keep teaching you through something you're no longer interested in. So I may stop something and then move on to another activity and say, now what do you want to play with? 
here's your choices. Anything within the realm of what's available to us, you pick, you pick what you want to do. We'll pick how we get to keep doing it and how we get to have having fun. Yeah. And there's always a small percentage of kids where it's really hard to find something, you know, they have stereotypical behaviors. Very few motivators. Yeah. So, I mean, you really have to think out of the box and have to introduce, try different activities, things that might work. I tell families that the reason a lot of kids develop the types of self-discovery behaviors and they don't develop the social behaviors probably in some instances comes from a really early misunderstanding of our of the society's understanding of what motivates that child. Like if I'm a parent and I have this pen and I say, oh, I want to teach my child the value of this pen. So I'm going to show them, look, you can draw circles and you can make a smiley face and look at the things you can do with this pen. And every time the child touches the pen, I try to get them to make a smiley face and show them how they can draw with it. The child might not have any interest in that smiley face, might not have any interest in drawing. The pen might not have no value to them under those terms. Yet if I leave the child alone with the pen and they look at it and they try things with it and they do this or they, oh, oh, check, oh, I like that. They find that they can find their joys in life through self-discovery and that interaction becomes an impetus to finding what I like. Every time mom and the pen are together, she takes the pen and makes me do things I don't want to do with it. Every time I can get this pen away from mom, I can truly enjoy what the value of the pen is. Mm -hmm. And so kids learn early on, really early on, that the way to benefit from life is to get the things I like or things I might be interested in away from other people and explore them on my own and do self-exploration in them and really figure out what the joy is. And then I learned to avoid mom and dad because mom and dad only take the fun out of things. They only come and talk to me when they, they come and try to play with me in a way that I don't like. They're tickling me. I don't like tickles. They're trying to give me kisses and hugs when I did something they like, but I don't like kisses and hugs. Or I want to do this and they just want to write. And so inadvertently, just our lack of understanding about what motivates a child causes us to build that barrier between them and the social world. And I think that the sooner we understand that and the sooner we start working on that with a young child, the sooner we can take some of that out of their learning repertoire, out of their learning history, and really show them that socialization is where things come from. That's why step two is so important, pairing ourselves in such high levels. Yeah. And step six, and making sure that we're always aware of what their motivators are and making those things available through us so they see us as the conduit to good things rather than the barrier to good things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The last part of step six is knowing our own priorities being able to make good decisions about what we really want to work on right now. The example I use is, are we trying to just get some kind of cooperation from a child who generally says no to everything? Or are we trying to get the child to do that cooperation without any help? Are they trying to do it independently? Or are we trying to get them to do it without being told first? Or are we trying to get them to do it and enjoy doing it and have a smile on their face and not yell and scream when they're doing it. Like these are all different levels of types of skills that we might be wanting to deal with a child. But if we don't as a team know what our priority is and dad is holding out for this child to do it without, without crying, but mom is saying, no, you can cry, you can, but I need you to do this because if you don't do this, then you're not going to be able to do these other things that we've got planned that are all great things for you. We just want the whole team to be on the same page with that. And step seven is where we make sure that we are. What is our priority in the moment? What do we want to reinforce? What do we not want to reinforce? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it can be confusing for the kid also. Dad says no, and then they go run to mom because they know that mom is going to say yes. Yeah. 
And the, the, the team needs to be unified, not, not unified in being strict or not be unified in being permissive, unified in knowing what our goals are and knowing what we can do that help move us toward those goals. Whether the child's choosing a positive behavior that we'd like to see more of, or whether they're doing something that we say, oh, this is not something that's going to benefit them in the future. And we want to make sure that we're seeing less of it. Mm -hmm. Regardless of what they're doing in the moment, everyone working with them should have the same idea of what it is we want to reinforce, what it is we want to motivate, what it is we want to suggest or, or push away from. What is it we want to say? No, that kind of behavior is not going to last. It's not going to be good for you in school. So if I let you get away with that now, you're going to, you're going to struggle when you get into the school classroom. So I'm going to make sure that you're not benefiting from that. But as soon as you make this other choice or some other choice that's more meaningful to you, I'm going to make sure that that's really well reinforced for you. Mm -hmm. And that's what steps two, three, and four is all about. Two, be fun. Three, give your instruction when you're ready to. Four, give that positive reinforcement, making that happen. And we build that snowball going downhill. But that leads us to step seven. Step seven is what we do when steps one through six are in place. And we're doing everything we can to make cooperation valuable and worth it and make sense to the child, engagement to make sense to the child. But they still, for whatever reason, past experience, the situation, the way that it occurs, they're still choosing to make a refusal to one of those instructions that we think are important enough to follow through on, um, some kind of an expectation, or whether they choose an inappropriate behavior. Maybe they hit their sister or they start screaming because they're not happy with something. We do want to understand why they're screaming. What is it that's causing that? But if we start to behave in certain ways that ultimately reinforce screaming, the bottom line is, is that child will scream more quickly. They'll scream more regularly whenever things aren't going the way that they want. So we have to identify what it is that's causing the screaming and try to decide, do we want this antecedent in the environment and then teach to it? Or do we want to just avoid that antecedent right now and keep it out of the environment so that we can focus on other things? That goes into our priorities of step six. But once we've decided this is what we're working towards and these are the goals that we're expecting and when we see a behavior that flies against that or is something that is counterproductive for that child's future, then we need to jump into step seven. And step seven says show the child that choosing an inappropriate behavior, if you have a better word for inappropriate, I'll take it. Basically, that means a behavior that a parent would rather not see again under those circumstances. But if you'd like to, if you see an inappropriate behavior, or if the child gives a direct refusal to cooperate with something that you've decided is important enough to give an instruction on, then you need to make sure that no form of reinforcement follows that behavior. It basically, just says we cannot reinforce behaviors we don't want to see again. I mean, that just makes sense when you understand the principle of, be, of reinforcement. Mm -hmm. Reinforcement will increase the things that follows. So as a teacher, guide, caregiver, we have to make sure that reinforcement doesn't follow the things we don't want to see increase. Having done everything else with step six, all throughout our day, 75% fun, being very careful about instructions we give, knowing their priorities, our own priorities, giving lots of reinforcement, slowly increasing the difficulty level over time is going to ease us from having to use step seven. But the truth of the matter is when it comes time for it, and we see that inappropriate behavior, or we see that refusal behavior that we don't want to reinforce, it becomes our job to then be able to cut off all forms of reinforcement. Where a traditional ABA approach might say, okay, well, was that behavior for attention? Don't give attention. Was it for escape? Don't give escape. I'm more focused on, let's take all known reinforcers off the table. I like to teach my families to think of your everyday steps one through six, your everyday environment, the lights are on and everything is available. Basically, you turned on the lights to the amusement park. 
and now Disneyland is open and we're playing a thing. And then, but guess what? You're going to have to stand in some lines. You stand in a line, you get the ride. You stand in the line, you get the ride. But uh-huh. if you decide you don't want to stand in the line, that's fine. Don't stand in the line. You don't get the ride anymore. If you start to use an inappropriate behavior, like you start to hit or yell, that's fine. We're just going to turn off the amusement park and we'll go outside where there's a parking lot. Stand in the parking lot for a while. You know, you have the right to be in the parking lot if you choose. You don't have the right to make Disneyland be open when you want, the way you want, and make sure that no one else gets to be on the rides, that only you get to go there and there's no lines, right? That nobody gets in this world. And just because a child has a different brain structure and a way of thinking and a way of interacting or socially identifying with the world or has a different way of of handling um, stimuli, that doesn't mean that they get to decide when the park is open, who gets to be in the park with them? Because that's not gonna that's not gonna last. That's not realistic. Your parents can maybe set that up for you. Yeah. But it's not gonna last outside of your first five to seven years of life. It's gonna get really problematic for everyone around you. And that's what we're trying to avoid. I don't want children who are diagnosed with autism to have a problematic life. I want them to figure out how to have a life where they get along and they enjoy their life and they're able to find people that get them and work with them but they don't feel this strong need or desire to control everyone around them, which is what we see with a lot of the kids that we come in and are asked to work with. Mm-hmm. Step seven, just to finish it, basically the two principles involved in step seven are extinction, not allowing reinforcement to follow behavior that we don't want to reinforce. And if necessary, we use something called mini consequences, which is kind of like that give and take. You're cooperating, I'm giving, you're cooperating, I'm giving. Oh, you're not cooperating? Well, I'm going to block it. And if you're going to keep not cooperating, I'm going to take it out of your hands. If you're going to keep not cooperating, I'm going to put it behind my back. And I'm going to show you that you're getting further away from the things that you want when you're making these choices. So that you're put in that that CEO reflexive, that conditioned motivating operation reflexive where the child says, oh, things are starting to get worse. I don't want that. Oh, I know. I just need to touch my nose or I just need to follow this instruction and things will go back. Oh, and now I get to play again. And we just set it up so that they always see that when you're starting to make those inappropriate choices, that we give them that reminder. Oh, hey, well, you're not going to be able to keep playing, but there's still a chance to turn it around immediately. I don't take things away for long periods of time. We don't mm-hmm. take timeouts and say, okay, you're going to have to go on a timeout for, for 10 minutes. We're not trying to punish the child and give any retribution for doing the wrong thing. We're just trying to make sure that the things that they're doing that are not going to be ultimately effective for them do not get reinforced. And so we just have to block forms of reinforcement for as long as it takes for them to make a better choice or a different choice something that we do want to reinforce. And then we start reinforcement again. So I teach the families, okay, the amusement park is open, the light switch is on, give your instructions, do your 75%, have your fun, do your thing, make life great. Get your instructions slowly built up over time. But if the child says, I'm not going to do it, say, no problem, you don't have to, light switch off. How long do you want to stay here? Right. And these steps are not necessarily linear, right? Like you can be jumping from one thing to another and you're constantly pairing that 75% of the time. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that because I didn't have a better way than steps to say it, but they're not like steps up a stair. You don't do step one, then step two, then step three. You're con- I look at the steps across as principles across this way, and you're responsible to all seven principles in whatever measure they're needed. And your child will ultimately determine based upon their behavior, whether you're able to keep spending more and more time in step two, or nope, now, now that they're showing me a motivation, maybe I'm going to give an instruction. Oh, but now they did it. So now I'm going to go to step four and give positive reinforcement. Oh, I got to keep my mind on step six. What do I want to reinforce? What I don't want to reinforce. Okay, now I'm back to pairing again. Maybe like a like a wheel or like a circle visual, you know, where it's kind of 
all at the same time. Yeah, that's a good explanation, yeah. I just don't want anything to ever be behind you, right? I want it all to be in front of you, maybe a semicircle in front of you, like a <laughs> rainbow in front of you. Because right. you have yeah, to yeah. always <laughs> be attending to everything. I see. Like, am I really in control of the reinforcers? Because as soon as I can no longer control the give or take of a reinforcer, the child is no longer put in a motivational situation where they have to make a decision. I want them to make the decision. Do you want to make a, a choice that I know is not in your best interest? Make it. That's your choice. I'm not going to stop you. Right. But I'm also going to make sure that you don't see there's benefit in it, that you don't mistakenly think that this is the best way to go, because that's what ultimately leads you down the wrong path of good social interaction with, with people in your life. That, that's what causes you to not be able to make relationships. I'm not trying to cause someone to change their viewpoint on the world. I'm not trying to say someone has to love social interaction or have to be comfortable with other people. I'm just saying that when you're demonstrating behavior that we know is going to make your life harder for you, if we can put you in a motivational position that allows you to start to see other benefits, and then you start to see the benefit of those things, and that allows you to start doing those things more, who's the loser in that situation? Mm. You know, now that's the process. That's what the seven steps is all about and, and, and how and, and why we use it. And it guides my entire ABA program. Everything I do falls into, does this fit with the seven steps? It's not only your ABA program. I mean, that's, you know, daily life with the girls as well. Right. <laughs> I was going to ask, like, do you use this with your children? Maybe you get asked that all the time. Absolutely, I do. Even from early on in their lives, I've always had this. I mean, ever since I understood that the seven steps is just the best way to interact with people in general, if I want to have a relationship with you and I want that relationship to be reciprocal and positive, I want to get what I need out of our relationship, but I also want to be someone you want to be with, which is all we're trying to do with our kids, the seven steps makes sense for me to use it. So I'm not always 100% great at doing it, you know? And I can't always identify what every human being in my environment may want. I don't have the time to do a whole list of what their reinforcers are and give more and better reinforcement whenever they're making good choices and, and that sort of thing. But I always want to, I always try to be available to the seven steps and I always try to let that guide my thinking. So when I'm making decisions with my kids, when Nadine and I are making decisions with each other, when I'm working with employees that I work with and friends outside of this, I always try to think, am I reinforcing them enough? Am I reinforcing enough of a person that this person wants to be with me? If not, why would I expect them to want to be with me? I need to put more time into pairing. I need to spend some time just playing with this person and not asking for something all the time because it's not going to get me a better relationship if I do. Is there a step that you find parents struggle with the most? I think there's different types of people and each type of person has a bigger thing to struggle with. Quite often when I meet a set of parents, not always, but quite often when I meet a set of parents, one parent will be more on one side and one will be on the other side. And that's causing lots of friction in the relationship as well. And just to go against type, the mom might be a real strict disciplinarian and might say, no, no, I have expectations and I'm going to make sure that you do this and I'm going to follow through with consequences. But that mom may not spend any time or feel comfortable being silly or playing or, or reinforcing behavior. No, you're supposed to do this because I expect you to do it. And if you do it, then I'm going to leave you alone. If you don't do it, I'm going to give you a hard time. Well, that's kind of the strict disciplinarian type of a parent. Those parents have the hardest time incorporating step two and understanding it and bringing it in and becoming better at it. But if that's the case, then that's what we work on. Mm -hmm. That's what I spend time focused on. How do I teach you to do step two better? Let's watch you play. Let me remind you when you're giving too many instructions. 
And then often it's the other way around, you know, where you have a dad, for example, who's so reinforcing, you know, he just plays, plays, plays. But then, you know, once he places an instruction, the child runs off, he just plays some more, you know? So <laughs> Yeah, he'll give in incessantly and then never gets the child to do anything that the child needs to do. And that child never has to put on clothes, you know, will scream and yell until they can no longer have guests over because the parent dad's just like, okay, just give in. He's screaming and yelling. You guys go home. And next thing you know, they can't have guests over. They can't take the child out to family and friend's house anymore. They feel isolated. The parents are upset at each other because the mom's saying you need to be stricter and the dad's saying you need to be more pleasant. And the dad has a better relationship, but no instructional control. The mom has instructional control, but no relationship. We're having kids who cannot go to school because they run around naked at home, you know, the whole day. And then they don't understand why do I have to work clothes at school, you know? It's, it's mm-hmm. And so our job then is to take these two different types of parents and kind of push them to the middle with an understanding of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You need to be doing all of this. Dad, you need to be playful, but you need to say what you mean and mean what you say. I got to work on step three with you and you need to be willing to follow through in step seven for as long as it takes. So I need to work on step seven and step three with you. Mom, you need to be working on step two and step four. Are you giving positive reinforcement? So dad, I'm writing two programs. Dad, we're working on step two and step four. Mom, we're working on step three and step seven. Everyone needs to know step five and six and one. That's just the way it has to be. I imagine this kind of program can just be completely life-changing for the family dynamic. What kinds of responses are you getting from families who implement the seven steps? Well, if you go to my website, Robert Tram Consulting, I do have a lot of testimonials. People have sent me things unsolicited, and I even have videos where I'm talking with families, and they, they've, or I've just asked them straight out. It's been three weeks. It's been a month and a half. How are things going? It's miraculous. And we even have families who haven't been with us for 10 years now who come back and still it's like, ah, oh, you know, it's, it's going so well. But here I just had to remember what you guys taught me 12 years ago and now it's, everything is perfect again. So it's, it, it's really great. And that's for us the biggest reinforcement, right? When we know. Yeah. But it's not uncommon for families to say things are 90% better within a month as far as their interactions with their kids. But it's not just about becoming more more strict. It's not just about becoming more playful. It's about doing everything. And then us helping them set up a schedule where there's always motivators and reinforcers available to give so that they can always do that. And if we get that set up right away, the change can be really remarkably quick. Yeah. Um, usually within a week to two, we'll know if what we've set up is working or not. Mm-hmm. And then usually if it is working, then by a month, it's not uncommon for a family to say things are 80, 90% better. Uh, and that's with schools as well. So the immediate change can be there. If a child is more challenging, if a family has more difficulty actually implementing the steps, figuring out how to implement the steps, or we as professionals struggle understanding the child's motivations and can't really set up a system that allows us to meet the seven steps because of whatever the reasons, then it can take longer and it can be a little bit of a slower slog moving forward. Okay. But it it just depends. And so you guys are offering remote consulting services, right? Yeah, this is new for us. We had Knusp ABA, which is mostly an in-home service. We would go to families' homes all around the country and, and support them in their homes and schools. And then three years ago, we moved to Canada, British Columbia, Canada. I began working for a company here where we were doing mostly in-home, but I started doing a lot of Zoom consultations. And then when the pandemic hit, we switched pretty much to 100% Zoom for a period of time and realized 
that because everything we do is parent training, that we can pretty much do everything we do over Zoom minus a couple of small things here and there where there's still benefit in us being there and demonstrating. But most of my families that I'm working with right now have never seen me in their home. They started with me on Zoom. I explained the seven steps. We developed a plan. We meet every couple of weeks or every month and we discuss how it's going. We make adjustments in the plan and they're telling me 80, 90% difference in what they're seeing. And I'm watching them work with their kids on Zoom and these kids are having fun. They're playing. They're having better relationships with their kids, with their families, and they're all happier. That's what we're looking for, right? There are some that struggle. Like I said, there are some families that don't quite get it right away and we need to kind of figure it out. And there's some kids that are a little bit more challenging to get the system really worked out. But when we apply the seven steps, the result can be, like I said, can be pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. And what we started to do was we created a a website called Robert Tram Consulting. It's basically just www.roberttramconsulting.com. And it's a place where people all over the world can go. We're going to try to get it in every single language available that my book is available in to start with. And then we're going to try to get it in every language that people are interested in. My goal, what I see in the future, is having professionals like myself available in different countries around the world so that families can do one of three things. They can get onto the website, download the free guide, and try it for themselves. Can I figure out how to do this on my own for free? If they try that and they have trouble, and they say, I need more support than this, then they can do pre-recorded webinars that I've set up, that I've already recorded and that I have available. You pay for the, the course, you get the course and the quiz and the video for 90 days, and you're able to watch it as many times as you want, go through it. And really what I teach you in those courses is how to do what I would do if I came into your house. This is what I would be looking for. This is what I'd be setting up. This is the seven steps. This is how I would create a plan. This is how I would adjust that plan. And if a family goes through those three courses, they would have that information to work from. But families, there may be some families that say, no, I really want guidance on this. And I think that's preferable. Ideally, we want families to have guidance on this. A lot of families don't have that availability. They live in places where they couldn't possibly find a behavior analyst who knows how to do this anywhere near them. So we gave them the other options to do it for themselves. And you have my books. But then we also have this option where what I envision is someone in Russia would be able to go on to Robert Tramp Consulting, read everything in in Russian and say, oh, I want to have this service. They click on it and then my one or two Russian coaches pop up and they say, oh, there's people here in Russia who who know how to do this and know how to do it. I'm going to buy a a three-hour session with them where where they're going to teach me what I would have learned in that course where I can ask immediate questions back and forth and really get it individualized to my child and my needs and take them through that and have them be able to do that. Right now, we're available in English and German, and we have a Spanish translation that we have, but we don't have it fully up and running yet, and we don't have a Spanish-speaking uh, consultant working yet. But that's our goal. Yeah, and your website has dozens of free videos already right now, so I encourage people to go check that out. We'll post links to your website in our show notes, and people can go download the Seven Steps to Successful Parenting, which is a really wonderful resource. I have one more question that I'd like to close with. What advice would you give to parents who are feeling desperate and hopeless? Like they come to you. What's the first thing that you say to them? There is hope. There really is hope. Because when we first got to Germany, one of the things most professionals did was they tried to quelch all hope. 
They tried to tell families, oh, your child has a diagnosis of autism. Well, that means he has a lifelong disability that's, and he's never going to get any better. And you're probably going to have to put him in a home at some point in his life. So the best thing you can do is to prepare for that and just love him for who he is and not really try to, to teach him anything. Or he'll never learn to talk or he'll never be able to be successful socially. And one of the first things we had to do was come in and say, no, nobody knows absolutely what someone's potential is. And we earned, we got a lot of criticism from some professional when we started in Germany because we were giving false hope. Mm. Well, I'll tell you what, take a look at the, the videos of these kids where we met them and where they were four or five, six years later, 10 years later, 12 years later. We've got clients that we started working with who were you know, spending a majority of their day just rolling on the floor, not communicating or looking at anyone who are now going to likely go to college and who are now going to, you know, high school. Now, we're not saying that that we're the end-all be-all answer to that sort of thing. But what we're saying is giving up on a child is never the right choice. And no one knows. No one ever knows what's possible. Mm -hmm. um, so why pull someone's hope away when what you should be doing is building that hope through progress, right? Mm -hmm. Give them reasons to be hopeful. Show them things they can do in the moment that make this moment better, that, that they can do today that will make tomorrow better. And then one week will make the next week better. And before you know it, you're looking back two or three years later and the level of thing you're working on is so minuscule compared to what you used to be dealing with. Yet you're still fine-tuning and you're still working, you're still making life better. And that's all we've ever really wanted to do. So that's it. That's the seven steps. That's been our that's been our career. And I couldn't have done anything that I've done without Nadine. She has been such an important part of Knoss BBA over the years. Yeah, I don't think you ever would have moved to Germany without me. <laughs> I wouldn't have moved to Germany. But even more than that, she was our first BI or uh, RBT, our first person working directly with kids. And then the first consultant other than me supporting them. And then she took over the office. And as we grew and developed, she was able to maintain and she handled all of the stuff with the, the government agencies and all of that. So I thank you for your awesome podcast and what you're doing here, trying to help bring more awareness, um, more understanding to the world outside of the areas where it's kind of grown up and developed and make things available and really get people to understand that we're all the same. We're all dealing with the same things. And regardless of what language we speak or what country or what flag we live under, we all have to work together and help each other be the best we can be at this. Whether it's the best behavior analyst we can be, it's the best human being we can be regardless. Um, it's really impressive. I love what you guys are doing. Thank you. Well, thank you both for sharing your expertise with us and you know, we have a lot of parents who listen to this podcast who I know will find value in these strategies and will, from listening to this episode, just be able to build positive relationships with their children. So I'll make sure that we link everything back to your website so they can reach out for more support. Yeah, we're here. We, uh, we want to help. We don't want there to be borders or limits to who we can help. So it's, so many people can only get help if they live in the area of someone who actually knows what they're doing. And there's a lot of places where there isn't someone who has that kind of experience. So yeah, regardless of your country or where you're hearing about this from, if you contact us through Robert Trump Consulting, we'll do our best to either support you through our website and through our, our opportunities, um, or even help connect you with someone locally who may understand the seven steps and how to use them. 
that's our ultimate goal. Plus there's free resources there, like you said. Wonderful. All right. Thank you both. Thank you so very much, Rachel. You got it. Appreciate the time. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take a moment to rate the show and leave a review. You'll be helping us to continue spreading autism awareness and acceptance around the world. Thanks for listening. Take care.